1: For more information, visit internationalculinarycenter.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Many people in our food community have been seriously impacted by Superstorm Sandy, and our hearts go out to them. At HRN, we've been covering these stories since the storm hit. To learn more, visit our website at www.heritageradionetwork.org.
2: Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live in the back of Roberta's Pizzeria on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from roughly 12 to roughly 12.45. Joined as usual in the studio with Nastasha the Hammer, Lopez, Jack and Joe in the engineering room, and today we have a special guest, Piper from Booker and Dax Research Lab downtown. Hey Pipes, how you doing? Good, yeah. It's, my, it's called a microphone. You got to talk into it. Uh, <laughs> so I, I have another person I can brutalize on here, right? It's good business, no? It's good. Anyway, calling all your questions to two seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. All right, so let's get to some of the email questions that we uh, we have already. Uh, we oh no, again with the not getting the right uh, thing on my iPad. Okay. Uh, this is from Paul Kay. Hi, all. Thanks for your work on the great show, and thanks for answering all my past questions. My latest question is about baking. In general, I'm happy with the results of my once-per-month attempt at baking bread. However, I'm always a little disappointed by the small or perhaps non-existent oven spring that I get. I haven't had any real-life training. My only knowledge is from books, but my impression from those books is that oven spring is to be expected and should be noticeable. Although my bread does rise nicely before putting it in the oven, i.e., I guess when he's proofing, Uh, As I say, I'm always a little disappointed with the amount it springs during those first few minutes of baking. Perhaps I simply shouldn't expect to see anything dramatic. Any help would be most appreciated. All the best, Paul. Okay. Uh, All right. Here's a... a, The the problem... It, first of all, I'm by no means a uh, a bread expert. There are people who all they do all day, all night, is uh, think about uh, bread, and so you know you always hesitate when there's people like that out there to make any kind of statement at all. But that said, I feel confident that I don't know enough information right now to answer um, your question. So, what we need for a real troubleshooting of uh, of your bread recipe, first of all, what style of bread are you making? Like, what what are you looking to get? Like, do you want a a dense crumb structure a very open crumb structure what kind of crust crumb structure is a gross word huh yeah, yeah. nastasia just made her crumb structure face which is very similar to vegan face a slight difference only i can tell uh but the it, so th- there's that right a- and then uh in general uh i need to know kind of what hydration level you're using so like what what kind of uh you know what's what style of flour first of all what you're how much water you're adding to the flour, and then how you're raising it and forming it uh, and proofing it and whatnot. In general, um, oven spring is uh, generated. First of all, most of the stuff that I that I read on the on the on the interline, what do you call it, internet on the internet about, uh, about oven spring, a lot of it is kind of BS. Uh, specifically, I don't think that uh, some people say this because you're increasing the, the rate of yeast reaction at the last minute as the bread is baking, uh, and that's what's doing it. I think that's almost almost probably certainly not the case because the oven spring happens very, very quickly and probably not in enough time for yeast to start reacting and all of a sudden producing uh, CO2 in overdrive. I think what what's going on Uh, is you need a high initial heat – a high initial burst of heat in the oven to rapidly expand the gases in the cell of the dough structure and then set the dough structure before the dough structure breaks. Uh, And so – what you're looking at to get a good oven spring is one: there has to be a good gluten network in there that's going to allow it to hold the gas as it expands. Uh, it's going to have to be uh, kind of formed properly, and it's going to have to have enough air bubbles in it already that can expand. Right, so it's formation of the of the you know right number of and you know amount size of, of air bubbles, getting them kind of big enough, but keeping the structure of the dough intact so that it can raise up and, uh, and spring. Getting a very high heat. Heat both from the bottom and from the uh, top. So with a baking stone at the bottom, with a very initial uh, high preheat, and then with steam injection or some form of steam to get a rapid, uh, rapid heat transfer into the loaf on the on the end. Uh, forget. I'm not even talking about the actual development of what the crust is like, which is another thing that steam can do, but I'm just saying rapid heat into the, into the dough. A third thing is a uh, proper slashing pattern in the dough uh, will allow uh, heat to get in and allow it to expand more, uh, like physically allow it to uh, expand more. So there's the slashing patterns that you make on it. There's a proper formation of the dough, proper proofing of it, like, like, uh, and making sure that the dough has the proper structure to get it to, to work properly. But... Very difficult to uh, figure out exactly which one of those problems you have. Most likely, your oven's not tricked out enough for it. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what kind of what kind of oven that you're using. There's an interesting book that uh, I haven't read before, but that uh, gets very high recommendations, and I want to read it called "Bread Science: The Chemistry and Craft of Breadmaking," which uh, came out fairly recently. And there's uh, a bunch of chunks on the uh, you know on the internet that you can read of that on their on their website. Uh, and then I would look at. Um, <clears throat> you know, a fresh loaf and those other kind of like large kind of uh, conglomeration of uh, bloggers who get together and talk about this stuff. I mean, if you're, if you're just baking occasionally, sometimes it can be difficult to wade through all the information uh, that they, they provide. And of course, a lot of it's red herrings because everyone, you know, like all of us are just experimenting all the time. But anyway, I hope that helps. Does that seem like it made any sense at all? Yes. No? Yeah? Uh, all right. <clears throat> Hello and good morning, team cooking issues. I like that, team cooking issues. Not cooking issues, team, team cooking issues. You appreciate that? Okay. Can you describe the pros and cons of open and closed baths for low-temperature cooking? A friend is tempted to purchase a sous vide supreme rather than polyscience immersion circulator for home use because the salesperson suggested that an open bath will cause the temperature to fluctuate and cause a loss of control. The guy was a schmuck. Thank you, Matthew in Chicago. Well, I don't know the man that you're discussing uh, personally, I didn't see him, but based on the one statement we have of his, which is that an open uh, bath circulator is going to have uh, large temperature fluctuations, yes, he is a schmuck. So if the rest of his thinking is in line with the thinking he, he uh, gave you right there, then yes, uh, a schmuck call is in order. The, dif- the main difference between the sous vide supreme and, the, uh, and, and a real immersion circulator isn't necessarily whether it's covered or not because it's very easy to cover a, uh, you know, a bath when you, when you use an immersion circulator. Uh, the main difference is in the circulation itself. Now, to go back for a second in case, I don't know, in case like someone scrapped you down to a chair and uh, this, your torture is to listen to this radio show and you haven't listened to it before, what we're talking about are pieces of equipment that allow you to do low temperature cooking, cooking at very precise temperatures that are very close to the actual temperature you want to cook to, all right? So that's low temperature cooking. And the main piece of equipment that most of us use to do that is the immersion circulator. And what that does is it keeps water at a very, very uh, – or anything really – at, liquid at a very accurate temperature and allows you to do all these new effects that you have for low temperature cooking. Now, there's, you notice the word immersion circulator. So there's circulation of water and the circulation is what allows you to get uh, very um, even temperatures over the entire bath you know, with, to within like a, a couple tenths of a degree. Now, if you don't cover that circulating bath – uh, what 's going to happen is you will get evaporation off of the surface of the uh, of the of the bath right, and so you 'll be losing a lot of heat and if you didn 't have adequate circulation, you will get a temperature stratification in the bath right i mean no no duh obviously you 'll get temperature stratification but um Adequate circulation is going to prevent any real stratification of temperature uh, once you get any reasonable depth below the bottom of the, uh, b- below the surface of the water. Now, if you have an unstirred bath, right uh the, the situation is horrible what happens if you do not cover an unstirred bath you will get constant evaporation uh, off of the surface and you will get uh in essence over time a temperature gradient established as uh wa- as water evaporates off of the top of the bath and by evaporating cools it because it's evaporative cooling and so you'll get a uh, you'll get a, a temperature gradient set up that probably is fairly static over a, a long cook once it settles out i would guess um Assuming that humidity of your room remains constant. Now, uh, aside from the fact, uh, w- what I just said, that you n- must at all times cover a, uh, a non-circulating bath, uh, and that you don't need to necessarily cover a circulating bath to uh, to get an accurate temperature, it is always good practice to cover a circulating bath. Always good practice because uh, <clears throat> you lose so much energy through the top of the um, to the top of the bath. Uh, you know, as things evaporate, that a, uh, sometimes in larger bath situations, your circulator might not have enough power to get it up to the temperature that you want because they only typically have between 750 and 1,000 watts of heating power. Uh, two, you are going to take a lot longer to come up to temperature than you otherwise would, and three, you're going to be evaporating off uh, stuff like uh, like a mother, and and so even over relatively short cooking times, you're going to lose water. Over long cooking times, like overnight, you could potentially boil uh, or not boil but evaporate all the water out of your bath and your product can be ruined and fourth in a in a circulated bath if you've done a bad job and not put a, a, a rack or some sort of weight uh, on top of your food such that it's like definitively sunk under the surface of the liquid, uh, you know. if you cover it, even if a little bit pokes up, you'll still get a fairly close temperature as long as the thing is totally sealed and covered up to what you want, it's just not as effective a heat transfer mechanism. So it, always a good idea to cover a bath, the only exception being if you uh, have a reheat bath at a relatively low temperature during service and you're going in and out of it all the time. But uh, under other circumstances, I always, always, always recommend uh, covering the bath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How you doing, Nastasha? I'm
3: good.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anything? Anything good happening? Nope. We got some uh, good news on the on the Booker and Dax front. Tristan Willie, uh, you know the opening, uh, or you know the guy who opened it with us, you know, the manager of Booker and Dax, won best bartender in the country according to Eater. <laughs> Eater wow. You yeah. guys are quick on the. Oh uh, yeah. Quick on the on the there, right? So that was good news, right? Yeah, that's great. News. It's good business. Love myself some Tristan. A little too tall for my taste, but other than that, good man, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay, Uh, we have a question in from uh, Matt Mincer on brines. Hello, Cooking Issues folks. I've got a question or three about brines. When I barbecue pork or chicken, I make a brine with a heavy dose of my dry rub in it. The theory being that the water is being drawn into the meat uh, and will carry some of that flavor uh, from the spice with it. But I was listening to one of your podcasts where Harold McGee said that the flavor molecules from spices are probably too large to penetrate the cells of the meat. The question I, uh, I have is, am I wasting my time and my spices by adding them to the brine? Has anybody studied which flavor molecules will penetrate the meat, if any? And finally, how much brining is too much? It seems at some point the osmosis would reach equilibrium and anything more would give diminishing returns. Uh, I'm sure it depends on the cut of meat, but is there any rule of thumb? Thanks, Matt. And a I wrote in a few weeks ago about using mason jars in my centrifuge, and for the record, they work about seventy-five percent of the time. The other twenty-five, not so much. I'm assuming what that means is like awful things happened, right? You assume Piper that what he means is awful things have happened? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's my hey, guess. Put
3: your
2: headphones on, so you can actually yeah. hear. So uh, yeah, this is Piper's first time on the radio. He you know he's not so much with the with the radio thing. He's he's uh, he's from Vermont. They don't have radios there yet, right? Is that true, Piper?
3: That's true.
2: Yeah. Uh, so <clears throat> so here's the deal. I think uh, you're pretty much right, and uh, Harold's pretty much right, and that most brines don't really penetrate the meat uh, to a very large distance. And so you're probably wasting a good bit of your spices. However, like brining something. Uh, hold on a second. We're getting some sort of uh, feedback action. You getting the hearing that, Jack? Some sort of feedback action? It's Piper's phone. It's Piper's phone? Nice. Uh, Vermont. So the, uh, the 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 thing is, is that um, I think you could probably get pretty much the same uh, reaction by doing your brine and then rubbing your spices on after it comes out of the brine. I mean that that's what I would do. Salt obviously gets carried into the meat um, because it's an extremely small molecule. Uh, you know, I don't really know what the penetration effects of something like sugar is. Nitrates penetrate in obviously, otherwise curing wouldn't work. Uh, but larger molecules tend I think not to make it into into the meat I think that's uh, that's accurate fact acids. Tend to do certain work, but they tend not to penetrate far, which is why you get kind of a different texture on the surface of a meat or any place where there 's a cleft in the meat where things can get into it. you can get effect from acids and intermuscular connections and stuff but you 're not going to get uh, an effect from uh, something like that in the dead center of a piece of meat in any reasonable amount uh, amount of time. Uh, I think you 're right. I think that you know there is a diminishing uh, diminishing return time, but that diminishing return time is going to depend. Uh, almost primarily on the thickness of the piece of meat you use and the brine strength that you use. Uh, so there's no real, no real rule of thumb on brining the same way there would be on, let's say, kind of curing, where everything's been written down uh, by uh, you know the, the, the USDA and the various curing authorities on it. I mean, Piper, do you know any rule of thumb? Any, any, no, you disagree with anything I said? No. No. Yeah. Nice. Nice. <laughs> I need some, you know, Piper. You need to like. You do disagree with me. Are you going to be like Nastasha, where you don't disagree with me on air, and then later you're going to tell me I'm a douche? No, he'll tell me. He'll tell you that I'm a douche, yes. and then you'll tell me, and I'll yell at you. Is yes, that exactly. is that how this is going to work?
4: Chain of command.
3: Oh jeez.
2: <laughs> oh jeez. All right, listen. Hey Jack, let's go to our first commercial break. And come back with more cooking issues.
4: You're listening to Kill Me in the Summertime by Dead Stars on the Heritage Radio Network.org.
2: Did you guys steal that music from, like, uh, the Hayden Planetarium's, like, universe movie that they play right when you show up?
4: It sounds like it. Maybe, like, Wizard of Oz on loop or something, too. I'm not sure.
2: Yeah, it's it's crazy. I think that's what it is, though. It's like, you know, you go and they're like, there are billions of stars. And it's like, weedly-deedly-deedly. Can you you play me a little bit of that weedly-deedly music? I want some of that. Some of that, like universe, you know what I'm saying, like the spinning right. stars and stuff.
4: Maybe we can like fade that in with uh, "Fish is Fish is Vodka."
2: Nah, don't mess, don't mess with the "Fish is Fish" song. All right, don't, okay. be, don't be messing with the "Fish <laughs> is Fish" song. Uh, the, uh, the, you know, the. Oh, by the way, we ha- we we haven't talked about that, right? You want to talk about the song that got sent in, "The Fish is Fish is Vodka"?
4: Yes, it's a you know uh, because we couldn't play "Vicious Vicious Vodka." We have a we have a alike song, and so does the title, and it was composed by. Uh, Someone on Twitter, Jack, do you remember the name of the person? Jack doesn't remember
2: you guys are bad people,
4: yeah, we no
2: credit, but uh you next time are hor- you guys are horrible you people him. Didn't you do yes, yes know, we'll, get, we'll we'll get to we'll get we'll get we'll do another commercial break we'll come back with a full thank you anyway, uh so we got one in from at Clefs. cooking issues, any ideas on time and temperature for cooking cod sperm sacks, low temp you gotta love a question like that cod sperm sacks, at low temp, any way to prevent coagulation of dairy also second question any way to prevent coagulation of dairy in a high acid system so here's uh the thing cod sperm i would never say cod sperm when you're actually going to serve it to someone i mean the term that we would use in food circles would be milt like uncle milty uh milt cod milt uh, i have not myself cooked cod milt i've seen it many times i think i've had it you've had the cod milt right mm-hmm. Saz? did you enjoy the cod milt yeah yeah you had it you had it, where, it, 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 it japanese style
4: that yeah and then with you at Um, what's that place in San Francisco? Where? Your friend. Which friend? He does a lot of, um...
2: Chris Costantino? Yeah. We had milk there? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. all right. So I guess, yeah. Anyway, it's got like a texture similar to, uh, like a Brains or something like that. But I have no idea how to cook it, uh, how to cook it low temp. I mean, it's got such a delicate structure that I would worry about vacuuming it. I would guess that it coagulates somewhere in the range of where uh, an egg white would coagulate. So you'd probably want to cook it at like, I don't know, 62, something like that, Celsius. But I don't know. Because it, it, you're supposed to steam it or fry it or something like that. It's supposed to be a delicate kind of puffy uh, puffy texture. What do you think, Pipes? you think that's a good uh, – what do you do? Have you ever, you ever cooked the cod milk? No, no. I actually
5: wasn't listening. Oh, it's nice. No, it's like yes!
2: – What the what the hell? Well, well, Piper. It's because Piper's not uh, trying to buy shoes on Zappos (laughs) like somebody else we know who shall remain. He's not on Facebook. He
3: just clicked up. He's
2: not on Facebook, Nesta. He's looking up oil polymerization for me. Anyway, so no, I do not have uh, a good time or temperature on it, but I would assume uh, it would be somewhere in that range, like sixty-two. I don't. Never cooked. uh, I've never really done even low temp on my favorite kind of, uh, you know, fish. Fish gonad part, which is uh, roe. I've never done any really low temperature cooking on that, although I should because I love shad roe. Shad roe is one of my favorite things to cook. Uh, you don't like the shad roe. No. Why do you not like the shad roe?
1: Something
4: about isn't it like really grainy?
2: Well, if you well if you overcook it, it's grainy. Yeah, yeah.
4: I had it when it was really grainy.
2: Who cooked it for you? You're gonna call At a restaurant. No, I'm not no? going to call. No? 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 no. All right, anyway. Uh, but the second one, it just so happens uh, at Cliffs, that we have here Piper, who, uh, his family is involved with uh, uh, CP-Kelco, right? We have the man to tell you how to prevent uh, the coagulation of high-acid dairy systems. Piper, with uh, with some pectin. Give me some pectin <coughs> stabilization knowledge. Drop it on me. Uh,
5: let's see. Um, Better Protein, be fast, Piper. protein protection... Uh, through what pectin.
2: Oh, right. my God, Piper. You, I'm <laughs> killing I'm me. not listening. All right, look. The question was, Piper, <laughs> Finally, snap back. Okay. Finally. The question was uh, how to do high-acid dairy systems without coagulation, and the answer I gave it to you just describe which pectins is you like pectin to preserve high-acid dairy systems.
5: Pectin and uh, CMC.
2: That's carbo- uh, carboxy For all of you who don't know what the hell CMC is and think it's a, a, a brand of truck, so he's using carboxy, right? Is yeah. that true? Right, carboxy methyl yep. I mean, Where who, bu- who makes that stuff?
5: Actually, CP Kelco makes it. Yeah.
2: All right. Can you buy that from Modernist Pantry?
5: Uh, I think you can.
2: From a Piper puts CMC in every freaking thing. Like, first of all, he's he's uh, his body doesn't do so well with the gluten, so he he you know
5: he's it for film forming and gluten free bread. Yeah. And also uh, viscosity without having to deal with a yield point
2: like xanthan. Yeah, yield point for those of you that have no idea what the hell we're talking about. Yield point – so if you take xanthan gum, it acts a little bit like a fluid gel. You sit it on a surface, you tilt it, and it acts like a gel until you put a certain amount of shear on it, at which point it automatically thins and turns to a liquid. That's called a yield point. So something with a yield point acts like that as opposed to something that is merely thick but will flow under all circumstances. So two easy real-world examples – uh, that don't involve hydrocolloids that you can think of are like maple syrup. No matter how cold it is, it just flows, but slowly. It doesn't have a yield point. Whereas uh, ketchup, right? Ketchup does not flow until stuff uh, until uh, shear is applied to it and has a yield point and it breaks. So that's that's what a yield point. So Piper is looking to st- uh, strengthen something in a system without having a yield point. He's using uh, CMC and pectin, but you use a specific. Uh, Pectin, don't you? Uh,
5: There are a couple different types of pectin you can use. I like, um, let's see, uh, beta pectin, which is from beets.
2: Right. What's the beta? What's the beta refer to for those who are out there in the in the pectin land? I don't don't even know that. You know what? Like Piper worked at CP Kelco's. Like, like what were you? The research? What what were you in the research labs? Yeah. Like busting stuff out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so Piper. We'll put pectin in just about any damn thing and, and cMC in just about any damn thing, so give them, just give them a recipe since you're not going to tell them just give <coughs> them a freaking recipe It's complicated all but, right
5: uh, 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 high concentration solution of beta pectin like um, like maybe five percent uh, is mixed with you know uh, the solution that you want to acidify, and then it's Continually mix for like an hour or so, and then you slowly add your acid. Um, it depends. I mean, there's so many specifics.
2: Seriously, so it's incredibly difficult. It's
5: incredibly... Without an accurate pH meter, I mean, you're gonna you're gonna just try and pour juice and like lemon juice into it. Yeah. <laughs> what's what's he trying to make?
2: Well, I'm assuming he wants to do like you know Calpico water or something like that, or like some sort of like acidified dairy beverage. I'm assuming that's what he's trying to do.
5: I would say make one high-concentration solution of beta-pectin or an HM-pectin, and, uh, and then add it in increments of, like, 1% total weight with the, with the dairy, and then slowly acidify, and you'll see that the, the flocculation point is going to, it's going to decrease pH-wise. From, from pH-wise.
2: All right. So, Clefs, there you have it. I wouldn't, uh, That's not so much a recipe you can take to the bank... But uh, Piper will work on it He'll get it out to you By the way I was looking up While Piper was talking I was looking up Aaron's last name Who, who made the song His last name is Robertson So Aaron Robertson Thank you for the Fish is Fish uh, Is Vodka song well, We like it a lot Whoa Wow Abrupt end on the clap guys Jesus Killing me Okay now, uh, another interesting thing that was brought up a couple of weeks ago I didn't answer was uh, a, an oil polymerization technique uh, that's made in Japan, another thing from Japan, called katameru Tempuru, which I guess Tempuru means like, like, kind of like tempura, right? Tempura? Tempuru? Tem- I don't know how to speak Japanese. Anyway, Katamaru Tempuru is a powder that you uh, – and I saw the video of it on, on, the, on the internet. Amazing. The, what they want to do is – is you ever have like a liquid fat and you want to dispose of it and throw it in your trash? You can't because it's a liquid. So what you do is you add this powder to it and it instantly polymerizes, turns to a solid, which you then scrape out of the pan and you can throw in your regular waste trash. Now, um... That's crazy. I don't know how the hell it works. It says it's some sort of algal thing, some sort of algal seaweed, uh, like nonsense. But I was like, nowhere was I able to find what's actually in it. What is actually doing it? And it's clearly some sort of. I mean, it's probably clearly, It's not clearly, I guess, some sort of polymerization where the oil is being uh, linked. I doubt they're, they're like instantly hydrogenating it because I don't know of any way to do that because it's not a system where they're adding heat. They're literally just adding a powder to the oil and it's turning to a solid, which is nutty. I don't know how the hell it works. Someone out there, please, if you know what this reaction is uh, and what's causing it. Because remember, there's ways to do it in, like, that I, I found that are very, very non-food grade. But the question is how do you do it in a, in a, in a food grade way such that you're not doing something crazy to your pen? Like are they somehow some sort of instant saponification reaction where they're turning into a soap? I have no idea. Someone please tell me. The only way I know how to solidify a fat like that – hardcore solidified is to add large amounts like upwards of 10 percent by weight of mono and diglycerides when that like so you could take a liquid fat add 10 percent uh, mono and diglycerides to it uh and you know heat it a little bit and then when it, when it cools it will thicken and turn to a, a you know a, a solid and you can scrape it out um and that's that's the only way that i you know that i've done it uh you know in the kitchen before but i don't i don't really i don't know Anyway, so we're looking that up, uh, and we'll take a second break. We'll come right back with Cooking Issues.
4: You're listening to Leaving by Dead Stars on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
1: Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today.
2: Okay, back on the bread. I was thinking about this for a second. Uh, I read an interesting, a uh, couple of interesting articles. They don't actually relate to the question about oven spring, but uh, I thought they were kind of interesting. One is that uh, these nut jobs are trying to figure out a way to uh, determine how their bread is going to react uh, to baking, and instead of doing the obvious thing for us, which would be to bake it, uh, they uh, put it in a vacuum chamber. And these guys, uh, by putting in a vacuum chamber, they expand all the air cells that are uh, the air bubbles that are already in the dough. And they claim that at any point in the bread making process, after the initial uh, kind of mixing and the air, air incorporation has happened, that they can get good correlations to the final bake volume just by putting the sucker in a vacuum and seeing how high it can uh, it can raise up. There's another interesting picture on vacuum mixing in the in the bread science book that I told you about. that available in the that's online where she reproduces a picture of a bread that was mixed under a vacuum it had the craziest pore structure it was considered a bad pore structure but i thought very interesting. in that like now i'm spending all morning thinking about uh like you know various uh you know ways to put vacuums on on bread but the other really interesting thing is uh is an article i read about the temperatures at which the uh temperatures at which the the bread and this relates back to oven spring is setting. And so the the point is is that the protein structure in a good bread Uh, in in a well-made dough, the protein structure is going to hold the gas bubble integrity up to a point of about 60 degrees Celsius, where a crappy bread dough is going to hold its structure up to a point of about 50 degrees Celsius. And so the, the key difference there is that that's right around the temperature that the starch gelatinization is taking place. So the protein is really only there to hold the structure of the bread uh, while you're waiting for the starch to gelatinize and set, and that's why uh, and, you know and I think we've discussed about it a couple of times uh, in the past. You know when you're working on a gluten-free bread, like a lo- like a lot of the problem is just getting it to react properly to the initial bake out. So it's the initial bake out uh, uh, of it that's hard because you're getting the proteins they have to hold there until the interior of the bread uh, gets up to. You know, fifty or, or sixty, and that's you know that's why when we're doing experiments, we'll experiment with you know uh, things that have weird kind of pre gelling characteristics, like like you'll add something to hold structure, like a xanthan or like a CMC, and then you'll add something to uh, actually gel in that mid range temperature where those other things are going to start to fail, like a uh, methylcellulose uh, or some other sort of heat gelling uh, uh, property. Because the idea is is that it's not that the protein is important. I don't think it's important, but it's not you know major important to the final texture of the bread i think the major the major impact from the final te- temperature on the bread is going to be the starches and how they gelatinize however the major impact to the formation of that final structure is going to be how the protein works and so that's the really dig diggity dig that you get when you're trying to formulate a, a bread without protein without without gluten proteins when you say that's yeah yeah it, it, now, now Piper's learned to do the Nastasha and just, just say, say just yes. say yes. Okay, uh, Joshua wrote in last week. We didn't get to get to it um, on beer. I hope this uh, is still the correct email, and it is. Even though we didn't answer it last week, obviously Nastasha got the email. Um, a few questions. I'm an all grain brewer because I didn't answer this last week, did I, Stas? Uh I'm an all grain brewer and I have access to grains, hops, good brewing equipment, uh, wort, etc. Which, like for some reason, I don't know. They wort. I call it wort, but I was told that brewers call it wort. Okay. No, you don't care. You don't do a crap. Okay. Uh, are there some interesting things I can do with these base ingredients beyond beer or uh, or the equipment used for it beyond low-temperature cooking? Um that's interesting. I know. I I love. Uh, I've been trying to use mashing techniques and uh, use the, the the amylase that. So you, wh- when you're when you're doing mashing, when you're doing an all grain mash, wh- what you're you're using barley uh, you malt typically malted barley. When you're malting the barley, you're uh, just uh, allowing a little bit of the uh, grain to grow. You're allowing it to germinate a little bit, and then you're stopping that. Uh, while the enzymes are in there that will convert the starch uh, in the barley, eventually convert the starch into sugar so that the growing embryo can um, can use them, you kill that such that the enzymes haven't been destroyed, but that the embryo isn't using all of that stuff. It isn't wasting any of the starch because you want to convert all that starch using the enzymes to sugar. So uh, I've been, uh, not with much success, but trying to experiment using um, using the enzymes in that to add other starches to do cooking related uh, things so uh, to break down um, potatoes for instance or break down even further sweet potatoes using a mixture of uh, amylases from 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 grains but I haven't had any sort of luck uh, you know that I haven't had any sort of luck that makes me want to think that uh, that's what I want to do for the next you know you know 10 years I'm having much more luck with um, not with grain-based uh, ferments doing interesting thing, but, uh, Harold McGee' has been turning me on to some really interesting uh, rice based fermentations not Japanese not Koji based but you know other weird uh, symbiotic uh, like mixtures of bacteria and uh, fungal and uh, yeast elements and uh, I forget what the name of it is but these have these weird little they're called yeast balls that are from China that McGee kind of turned me on to that make this amazing fermented uh, rice gruel that tastes unlike anything uh, ever so I've had more luck using that in culinary uh, in culinary applications but I haven't really had done much with beer now now, malt is delicious, and malt, I think, uh, especially even the, even the dried stuff that you can uh, buy or the extract, is an underused ingredient and from a culinary standpoint. It's delicious, uh, you know, malted mashed potatoes. You know, not malt like, you know, baker's malt or like malt like you make milkshakes with, but like large amounts of – you know, uh, Brewer's malt b- malt powder, um, you know, DME, dry malt extract, which you don't use because you're all grain, um, is a awesome uh, addition, uh, flavoring addition to, to to many things that I use. Two, I have a fair bit of beer. What are some interesting things I can do to play with beer for sweet or savory applications? I've been thinking about foams with methyl cell F50 and have used it in cheese preparations with sodium citrate. Um Look, methocel F50 beer applications are kind of one of the classic applications uh, of methocel F50. I mean I think one of the fir- – in fact, the first application I saw, methocel F50 is a hydrocolloid derived from cellulose uh, that has very good whipping properties. And it's used uh, mainly by chefs to make very dense like kind of shaving creamy uh, consistency foams because it makes a very fine-celled foam as opposed to something almost akin to an egg white uh, as opposed to kind of the light, airy foams that are produced by uh, things like um, – mm mm-hmm. Uh, by things like less um, you know VersaWhip is another foaming agent, but I, I tend to think that Methacell F fifty makes kind of a finer, kind of more egg whitey uh, foam than VersaWhip usually does, although VersaWhip is also good for certain applications. Anyway, uh Methacell F fifty also does something VersaWhip can't do, which is if you make a uh, if you make a like a like a whipped egg white texture thing with Methacell F fifty, a foam, you can pipe it uh, onto a, a tray, throw it in a dehydrator at 135 Fahrenheit for for a couple of hours, then turn it down to hold it, and it'll make a crunchy, like a crunchy meringue, uh, crispy thing with no protein in it. That's amazing. Now, the first application I saw of it was Methocel F50 was in fact beer. It was Sam Mason, uh, who I don't know when his ice cream company is starting up again. do You know? Does anyone know anyone? Yeah. Anyone? Uh, it's going to be delicious, I'm sure. Anyway, uh, was he was doing uh, back at WD50 when he was a pastry chef at WD50 was making a uh, Guinness foam with Methocel F50, and as I remember, I tasted it and my feelings was it was, it was delicious. Um, obviously, cooking with beer uh, is good. I've been using it a lot in, in cocktail preparations. Of course, that's nothing new. So I guess I don't have anything really new. I like this cheese application with sodium citrate. So I'm assuming you're making like processed cheese with beer. You think that I – mean mean you'd have to add some sort of – you'd have to add some sort of like casein, extra casein to it. You buy – I did some work with um, a product called rennet casein, and rennet casein is, uh, is casein that's been produced fr- from the process uh, – like you actually rented it, and then you break it down, powder it, and you can reuse that to make cheese analogs. Uh, and so I've done some initial experiments with uh, rennet casein, but I'm sure that as long as you get the pH right with the, with the beer, that you can make a pretty interesting kind of beer cheese. In other words, it, I, I would be most interested in something not that had the flavor of cheese, but had the meltability of cheese, but tasted like beer. And I think that would be eminently possible with uh, beer, rennet casein, and the right emulsifying salts. So I wouldn't just use citrate. You'd use a… a Dave, a, you
4: have a call. And let's keep it to one question. It's not a what, personal what phone call.
2: Wait, you wait, you're telling me it's not a personal phone I'm call? The lady who's buying shoes on the internet? All right, caller, you're on the air. not
3: buying shoes. And caller, you have one question.
2: Caller, you're on the air.
0: Hi, David, uh, Dave Nistasha, and friends. Uh, this is Brian in San Francisco. Excuse me, I have a cold. Um, but uh, two questions. First is um, lecithin. Uh, what's, I, I found in my natural food store the soy lecithin, which looks kind of like bee pollen. It kind of crumbles.
3: Right.
0: And then, but I've seen some recipes that want liquid. So what's the difference? Oh. And, and I guess the first they call soy lecithin.
2: Yeah, almost all the lecithin that you buy in uh, in is from soy, and it's not that that's the only lecithin that's out there. It's just a byproduct of manufacturing all the other soy products. They have soy lecithin. I've never used liquid lecithin. Did you ever use liquid piper? Yeah. Did you like it? I mean, it's like yeah, I hate
5: the granules.
2: Well, the granules are ba- the granules are obviously the worst. The powder is pretty good. You can buy a powdered one, and the the, the problem with the granules first of all i think they they tend to accentuate the off flavor that you can get from lecithin if you use it too much and also they're hard to get what what do you say you're still there they 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 they're hard to get into the uh they're hard to get into solution sometimes the granules and the the whereas the powder is like you know. Easier, but the liquid. I mean, assuming if you can buy the liquid, if you can tolerate having extra, extra, you know, liquid. I'm sure it's not. I'm sure it's oil based, right? Yeah, uh, sure. But if you could have it, uh, you know, because less than would rather be in oil than in water. You, whenever you're talking about an emulsifier, you have to look at what's called the the hydrophobic uh, lip lipo, well, the hydrophilic lipophilic balance, where you're looking at is it an oil loving emulsifier, is it a water loving emulsifier, and the big mistake most people make with uh, lecithin is although it's kind of somewhere near the middle, it's not extreme on either side. Less than is an oil loving uh, emulsifier. So if it's coming as a liquid, it's almost certainly coming in an oil based uh, liquid. Now, um, I if I've never used liquid less than thin, but I would guess it's a lot easier to use because the, the the pain in the butt about less than is getting making sure it's in the liquid properly. Right? Wouldn't you agree? Yes. Yeah. I don't know. We I think we lost the caller because I, we have some sort of like weird feedback loop going on here. But back to cheese for one second. Uh, the book that you guys want to get, and I think I've mentioned it on the on the uh, show here before, is "Processed Cheese and Analogs by Adnan Tamimi, and uh, that's going to have all the recipes you need. And you can you can look at a good bunch of it on Google Books and see uh, see what's going on. Finally, on the way out, we have a question. Well, okay, one more thing on cheese. Uh, can sodium hexametaphosphate be used as a replacement for sodium citrates in recipes as well as for sequestering calcium? If yes, is there a standard scaling amount for the amount used? I'm sp- thinking specifically about a modernist mac and cheese recipe. Sodium hexametaphosphate is not a single thing. It's a group of polyphosphate salts, uh, and it's a monster uh, at sequestering calcium, uh, it's not a straight replacement for sodium citrate because they they have kind of different functions uh, in a mac and cheese. They 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 function. Uh They function differently. Usually when you're making a cheese-based thing, you need to add uh, not just one uh, emulsifying salt but two or three. And uh, the function you need depends a lot on the pH of your system. So certain of the salts uh, are more basic than others. And so you need to add them to get your pH in, in the right level. And also they tend to have different textures depending on which one you use. And unfortunately, it's not a straightforward thing. It's kind of a little bit of a dark art. And so it requires a a lot of experimentation. A lot of it is still just people like testing recipes and keeping logbooks of of what they do. But uh, sodium hexametaphosphate and sodium citrate together, uh, you should be able to get a lot of things under your belt having those two uh, ingredients on hand when you're doing cheeses. Finally, can I explain my home seltzer system? Yes. Here's what you do to make the if if you have the money and the time and uh, and but now but you don't want to spend money or time later. What you do is you get an under the counter ice machine. And then you drill a hole in the side of the undercounter ice machine. This is, not, this is what I kind of have at home. What I have at home is a slightly more ghetto version of this. But you, you take an ice machine, you drill holes in it, right? You buy a cold plate. Go to uh, go to Mark Powers. They're in Guntersville, Alabama. Cheapest. Get a cold plate. Two circuits. One circuit of a cold plate is not enough to get your seltzer cold enough for, for what you want to do here, right? So what a cold plate is, is it's a big stainless steel coil that's embedded in an aluminum block, and you keep that underneath uh, ice, right? Now, one chain of a cold chain is not going to drop the temperature enough. So what you do is you put the in... You, oh, oh, I forgot. You have to buy a carbonator. A carbonator is a giant tank that holds water at room temperature with a pump, the same kind of pump. It's a rotary vane pump made by Procon usually. And it's the same pump they use in an espresso machine, and that's hooked up to your water supply. So you, get, you put your water supply straight out of your sink in through a filter. You put that, uh, goes through a filter. Once it goes through the filter, it gets hooked onto the pump on your carbonator, right? You then get a 20-pound CO2 tank. You want to run it about 95, 96, 98. Psi somewhere in there into the tank. Now your water mains don't have enough pressure to inject water into a system that has that high of uh, that high of a pressure. So the procon pump overcomes that pressure and shoots the water, sprays it into the uh, tank. That spraying makes such a fine surface area that the water is instantly carbonated. Now uh, you need to have it at 98 to uh, 90, 90 to 100 psi because you're doing it at room temperature. So that's under extreme pressure. It comes out of that, goes through two circuits of your cold plate, right? two circuits of it and it's underneath your ice machine so now you have constant ice supply and you have constant cold seltzer when it comes out the next biggest mistake people make is they use a crappy picnic tap like you would use for beer they're worthless useless you need to get what's called a Becker squeeze valve you can also get Becker B-E-C-K-E-R Becker makes the best seltzer valves no question because it has a giant compensator in the back of it that allows you to make the transition from the high pressure region uh, where the seltzer is to the low pressure atmospheric region, and they're and they're just they're they're free. It's freaking awesome. That's the system. So that's the system I have at fifty four Eldridge at home. The problem was I couldn't fit an under counter ice machine uh, in where I wanted to put it because uh, it would have required too much a uh, ventilation problem. I just couldn't do it. Plus, with all the tubes coming down from my espresso machine, because my espresso and my seltzer rig are together right where all my filtered water crap is. So I have to go through the awful. Well, it's not awful. I built an insulated uh, box like out of wood and uh, spray foam and blue, and blue foam uh, with a condensation pump, right? You need a condensation pump. With a condensation pump, and so now uh, my freezer, which is across the aisle in my kitchen, I pull the ice out of it every day from the ice maker, dump it into my insulated box, into the cold plate, and then that's how I get my cold seltzer. Uh, and so that's my cold seltzer rig at home. It's awesome. The one with the automatic ice machine is even better. Now that I have a seven year old that I can boss around, he actually does the ice. So it's just like having a manual ice, you know, a regular ice machine for me. But that's how I recommend doing it. It's the balls. I never run out of seltzer. Cooking issues! <laughs>